podcast uses profanity and topics may be disturbing for some listeners. Listen at your own risk. Welcome back to Hell on Heels podcast. I'm Bryce. I'm Brianna. I'm Amanda. And hello again. We are back at you. I don't even know what episode this is. Is this seven? Six, I think. Seven? Did we say it was seven. six last time? I think it yeah. is seven. I think it's seven. Lucky it number is. seven. It is seven. You're right. I put it on the calendar. <laughs> I looked at the calendar. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, how are you guys? Good. It's early, but I'm good. I've been up for hours. What are you talking about? It's early. And I'm an hour yeah. behind you guys. I've been up since like 6.30. Just because I can't get out of that habit. I mean, I've been up since like 8.20. But still, it's only like, it's not even two hours after I woke up. So I'm still kind of, you know, like, okay, let, let's do this. Let's go. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> also, Jack just left and he's bringing me Taco Bell. So that should wake me up a little bit. Cody is bringing me Sprite Zero and a Smart Water. Oh, that's sweet. James brought me food before he went to sleep because he works night shift. So, <laughs> So what you're saying is... I can't make you scream during the recording. Oh, he'll sleep through it. Oh, okay. If he can sleep through the dogs, because they're in there with him, he can sleep through me screaming. Better do it while he can, because we'll have a child possibly tomorrow. So, Yeah, are you excited? I am now that I did a lot of last minute shopping. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And uh, full disclosure. Huh? No, it's supposed to come sometime today. But I did go and get a bassinet, so... Even if it doesn't come today, then I'm still prepared. Uh, but full disclosure, I am having contractions today, but they are all over the place. So probably not an issue other than oh, my general so. discomfort. <laughs> so if you go, um, I think I'm going into labor in the middle of the recording. We're going to say, okay, bye. Yeah. Or if I do this, that's usually how it works. Oh, okay. Yeah, it happened a lot in Walmart yesterday. And I was like, I swear to God, you better get your shit together because you are not I'm not going into labor in the middle of a Walmart. That's what's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> kind of be Gosh. hell. <laughs> so, I mean, but what? There's like a hundred people in a Walmart. You most definitely would find a doctor if you know you just screamed, labor! She's going into labor! We need a doctor! I don't think oh, you'd no. find a doctor out of a hundred people. I think you might find someone that's willing to help, but not necessarily a doctor. Mm -hmm. And my town is so small, there's not even an OBGY in here. So my hospital and my doctor is about 20 to 25 minutes away. <laughs> Yay! So what so you're bonus. saying is that when you start have contractions, like mm -hmm. 15 minutes apart, you should, you should head over there. I don't know how this works. We're just going to wing it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to wait until my water breaks and be like, this is it. Let's go get in the car. I mean, sure. Why not? <laughs> okay. I have a long story for you guys today. I did not mean for it to be long. I just ended up down a rabbit hole. So can we get started on stories? Yes, ma'am. Yes. I'm excited. I am too. Is okay. this the lipstick killer? Is this what? Is this the lipstick killer? Yeah, don't ruin my shit. Have you guys ever heard of... <laughs> just cut that out. Just cut that out. I, got you. I, I was just making sure so that I was on the right one for the drive, but... Yeah. Um, have you guys ever heard of the lipstick killer? No. 
I actually have heard of them, but I don't know the story. So this is going to be, I like this. Okay, I went down. I thought, oh, this will be like a short and sweet one. No, I went down a rabbit hole for hours and hours. All right. So this takes place in Chicago, Illinois. Um, There are a total of three victims, which we're going to get into first. So our first victim is Josephine Ross, who's a 43-year-old woman. She was found murdered in her apartment on June 5th, 1945. Um, She had actually been stabbed four times in the throat and her head was wrapped in a dress. Police had found dark hairs clutched in her hands and an unidentified man had been seen loitering or possibly running away on the day of the crime. Now, no valuables were taken from her apartment, so it's not like it was a burglary gone. I mean, it could have been a burglary gone wrong, but nothing was taken. And all of her, like her ex-fiance, boyfriends, whatever, they were all cleared. They all had alibis and the police really had no lead. That takes us to Frances Brown, who is a 33-year-old woman. She was also found murdered in her apartment on December 10th, 1945. So about six months apart. She was found with a knife in her neck and a gunshot wound to her head. She was also found with a towel wrapped around her head. So they're already starting to see similarities between Josephine and Francis with the mutilation to the neck and the objects being wrapped around their head. Um, A cleaning lady actually found her body because a radio was playing loudly and her door was partly open. But again, nothing was taken. There was nothing of value taken from her. However, this time there was a message written on the wall. Oh, you guys can look at the first image, by the way. So the first image, far left person, that one is Josephine Ross. The middle picture is Francis Brown. Anyway, so for this one, there was a message written with lipstick on her bedroom wall. And that message read, for heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. And that is actually the second photograph, if you guys want to look at that. So you can look at the first and second ones right now. So very much strange that there's this message written on her wall in her lipstick. And in addition, a witness reported hearing a gunshot around 4 a.m. And the night guy of the apartment building said that a nervous looking man who was about 35 to 40 years old, probably weighed about 140, 150 pounds, had gotten off the elevator and left. So that's kind of, that's sketchy. Police had even released that they believed the suspect could be a female at one point in time. And they also found a smudged or bloody fingerprint on the door jam in the apartment. Did they say why they thought it could be a female? Uh Uh-uh. They never Hmm. got into details of that. Okay. The third victim, which this one is very out of character based off of his pattern on his previous two victims, is Susan Degnan who is a six-year-old who was taken from her room on January 7th, 1946. A ransom note was left outside her bedroom window on a ladder. She was on the first floor, so I think the ladder just happened to be there as a coincidence. The ransom letter read, Get $20,000 ready and wait for my word. Do not notify the FBI or police. Bills are in fives and tens. Burn this for her safety. And that is picture number three. So if you guys want to look at that ransom letter, you guys are welcome to. Also, it looks like he's or she, the killer, the person who made this ransom letter, does not know how to spell. They spelled ready, R-E-D-D-Y. They spelled wait, W-A-I-T-E. Yeah. We'll put a, we'll put this up on Instagram so you guys can see their um, 
their spelling errors and you guys can be grammar police. It just bothers me that he did spell those words or she, whoever, or, well, you said you thought it was a female. So I'm going to say he, or the police did, I'm sorry, thought it was a female. It bothers me that the words are spelt wrong, but then he, they use this fancy ass and what is that ampersand or the and yeah. symbol. So you can't spell, but you can do that. I can't do that. Um, that's essentially the trouble clef. Maybe, I don't know, maybe they were music fans and, you know, they, they had to do music theory as a kid. Actually, that's something I was going to bring up. But based off of the writing on the ransom letter, they did believe that this person had musical skills or musical background of some sort. So that does come up as maybe like part of their theory later on. But also... I noticed that the handwriting in the ransom notes and the handwriting in like with lipstick on the wall for the previous victim, they're not the same. I mean, can you not ruin my story? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was just trying to analyze. I'm sorry. Look, Detective Bree is on the case. Okay. <laughs> I can tell, but Detective Bree needs to calm down because I already have details. <laughs> they're just coming okay. up. <laughs> So they have this ransom letter and her family begin getting calls to demand the ransom. So a man is just repeatedly calling them. Eventually, Mayor Edward Kelly of Illinois had actually gotten a note as well. And the note said, this is to tell you how sorry I am not to not get old Degnan instead of his girl. Roosevelt and the OPA made her made their own laws. Why shouldn't I and a lot more? Now, the OPA is the Office of Price Administration. And at the time, there was actually a nationwide meatpackers strike. So something was going on there. And OPA was talking about extending rationing to dairy products. So why this is significant is because Degnan, Susan's father, was a senior OPA executive who had just recently transferred to Chicago. And due to the threats that they felt they saw in this letter, which, I mean, obviously a little girl is missing at this point, another OPA executive was assigned armed guards. Like, they were taking this very seriously. And unfortunately, 12 12 hours after her disappearance, Susan's head was discovered in a sewer a block away from the Degnan residence. Oh. How long were they getting these calls? It doesn't explain how long. I couldn't find it. was just for days afterwards. And I can explain those calls for you in a second. Okay. So her head was found in a sewer. Her right leg was found in a catch basin. Her torso was in another storm drain. And her left leg was in another storm drain. Her arms were found a month later in February of 1946, about a half a mile from her home in yet another sewer. Blood was found in drains of laundry tubs in the basement laundry room of a nearby apartment building. And throughout the investigation, police had questioned hundreds of people and they gave polygraph tests to about 170 individuals. They really just didn't have too many leads and they were just kind of following what they could find. When the coroner did his examination or her examination, they declared the time of death around 1230 a.m. to 1 a.m. the night of Susan's disappearance. They said that 
that a sharp knife had been used to dismember her. Not only did they say dismember her, they said expertly dismembered her. They believed it could have been a hunting knife or something similar. It was determined that she was already dead when she was dismembered in the laundry room. And in the coroner's expert opinion, this is a direct quote, he stated that the culprit was either a man who worked in a profession that required the study of anatomy or one with a background in dissection. Not even the average doctor could be as skillful. It had to be a meat cutter. He also added that it was a very clean job with absolutely no signs of hacking. Hacking meaning just like... Like hacking away at it, like chopping. So he knew what he was doing. Yeah, they knew what they were doing. And again, the handwriting analysis who examined the ransom note did actually say that it was written in a style similar to music notation. So they did think that the writer could have had some sort of musical skills. Now, they don't have a lot of suspects, but we have suspect number one, which is Hector Verberg. I don't know how to say his last name. I googled it and I couldn't find pronunciation. I'm going to go with Verberg. He is a 60 or he was a 65 year old janitor in the building where Degnan lived. He was a Belgian immigrant and police initially told the press this is the man. They were like, yeah, we, we got him. It's this janitor. But there's already discrepancies with the profile they've started building. Because we know based off of what the coroner said is that it has to be someone that is a meat packer or surgical or something. They're gilled with cutting things. And he's obviously neither of those. He's a janitor. So I don't know how that connects. So police basically said their evidence against him was the fact that Verberg frequently visited the so-called murder room. But she was dismembered in a laundry room and I'm willing to bet he went down there to do his job. They also said part of their evidence was the grimy state of the ransom note suggested that it was written by someone that had dirty hands such as that of a janitor. Wow, rude. Uh-huh. Uh, police also tried to pressure his wife into implicating him in the murders as well. And she was like, what are you talking about? No. Police held Verberg for 48 hours, which consisted of questionings and beatings that left him severely injured, including a separated shoulder. Throughout all of this torment while he was being beat by the Chicago police, he maintained his innocence and denied any involvement in Susan's murder. Thankfully, his janitor union lawyer, which I was like, I am so glad there is a janitor union who got you a lawyer because bro, like really, they did get him a lawyer and that he was released on a writ of habeas corpus. And basically that is an unlawful detention or imprisonment. So he was unlawfully detained. And this is a direct quote of what Verberg said. And I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, I'm guessing. Um, Verberg said of the events, so this is his quote. Oh, they hanged me up. They blindfolded me. I can't put my arms up. They are sore. They had handcuffs on me for hours and hours. They threw me in the cell and blindfolded me. They handcuffed my hands behind my back and pulled me up on the bars until my toes touched the floor. I know eat. I go to ho the hospital. Oh, I am so sick anymore and I would have confessed to anything. He did end up spending 10 days in the hospital and later it was actually revealed that it couldn't have been him. I mentioned previously that he was a Belgian immigrant and he couldn't actually write English well enough to have written the ransom note. He just was not capable of writing. I know it wasn't great English, but he didn't know how to write English that well. He just couldn't have done it. Plus, this 
poor man. Uh-huh. I know. That's so sad. I understand that, you know, this little girl, everybody, everybody wants answers when anybody goes missing or ends up unfound, especially in such a horrific way. And especially when it's a child. But I, I mean, if it were my child, yes, I would want answers and I would want them quickly. That's understandable. But I would want the right answers. Like while you're stringing this poor man up to dry, almost literally, where's this, where's the culprit here? The guy that actually did it. And keep in mind, this is 1946. I don't know what laws they had for like interrogations, that type of stuff. I didn't have time to go down that rabbit hole. I was already going down my own (laughs) rabbit hole. I was going to point out that kind of going back to what you were saying about the ransom letter and they said that it had to be like somebody dirty or whatever. It kind of made me like look at it a little more and it the letter kind of looks like very smudged. I was going to say that could most likely be like a left-handed person as well. So I did not get into if they were left-handed or right-handed. I was more focused on the bullshit of this case. No, I know that that is complete bullshit. <laughs> So thankfully, Verberg was able to actually successfully sue the Chicago Police Department for, at the time, $15,000, and his wife also received $5,000. So a total of $20,000, and I did that conversion on some calculator I found on Google that I'm going to trust. And today, $15,000 would be $212,760.77. And $5,000 would be $70,920.26. I'm happy for them. They were like set for 20 years. They were good to go. Thankfully, good old Hector was released. From everything I could find, he recovered and he lived out the rest of his days not in jail. Unfortunately, that does not, that's not the case for everyone. Now, next we have the next suspect is a Sidney Sherman. He was a recently discharged Marine who had served in World War II. Police had found blonde hairs in the back of the Degnan apartment building, which they believed had something to do with Susan's disappearance. A nearby wire was found and authorities actually believe that that was used as a, I don't know if I'm saying this correctly either, but a a garrote? Oh, a garrote. A garrote, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. What is that? A weapon where you basically have a wire with two handles and you use it to choke someone, to strangle someone. Why is that even legal to to get what i don't think it's legal to get i think it's makeshift oh yeah a lot of people hand make them yes so they believe that was used to strangle susan they also found a handkerchief that police suspected was used as a gag now on this handkerchief there was a laundry mark name of s sherman and that's kind of how they connected sydney sherman to the Degnan case. They were basically just hoping that this was a misstep on the killer leaving like, oh, I left my handkerchief there on accident. Oops. And not a coincidence. So they did go through records, found that Sydney lived at the Hyde Park YMCA. And when police went to go question him, they found that he had vacated the residence without checking out and quit his job without picking up his last paycheck. And police were like, oh shit, this is our guy. And a nationwide manhunt begins for Sidney Sherman. They find him four days later in Toledo, Ohio. He explained that he had just eloped with his girlfriend. Him and his girlfriend went and got hitched and he denied that the handkerchief was even his to begin with. He's like, yeah, that's not mine. 
Good try, though. He did pass a polygraph test. He was not tortured, to my knowledge. They just let him do the polygraph test, and he passed it. Yeah, they learned their lesson. <clears throat> no. But they did find the Hankey's real owner to be Airman Seymour Sherman of New York City, who was out of the country during the murder. So he had an airtight alibi. And he actually said he had no idea how that hinky had ended up in Chicago. He's like, I don't know. It wasn't me, though. What the fuck is happening? (laughs) I know. It could have been anything. So they did eventually drop this hinky theory and just decided it was a coincidence. Um, They did have another lead. Local boy Theodore Campbell claimed that another boy, Vincent Costello, had killed Susan. Campbell told police that Costello lived only a few blocks away from Susan. Costello had been convicted of armed robbery at the age of 16 and sent to a reform school. Um, And then he also stated that Costello had admitted to kidnapping and killing Susan and had told Campbell to make the ransom calls to the Degnans. So it's just two local boys. One is saying they killed him and the other one's just doing these ransom calls. So police bring these boys in for questioning. But a polygraph test shows that both of the boys had no knowledge of the murder and they're just little fuckheads. So there's yet another failed lead. I mean, why would you literally like, I get the publicity, but why would you want publicity saying like, yeah, you know, I killed this girl. What, what's in it? They're little shitheads. That's all that it comes down to yeah. is they're little shits. So by April of 1946, police had investigated 370 suspects. So all of them had been questioned and cleared. And at this time, the press is being very critical of how the police is handling the investigation. I mean, they don't have any leads. They don't have much to go off of. It's not a time of dna how it is today and there's not the technology there was today so i don't know how they caught killers back in the day but i i'm glad i don't live in that day and age right now now we do get a confession from one richard russell thomas he is a nurse or he was a nurse in phoenix Arizona. He was in Chicago at the time of the Degnan murder. He was arrested in Phoenix for molesting one of his own daughters. And a handwriting expert for the Phoenix Police Department had informed Chicago that, hey, there's a lot of similarities between Thomas's handwriting and that of the ransom note left at the Degnan home. Basically, many of the phrases in Thomas's extortion note were very similar and just the way he wrote and the verbiage he used was just very similar and the handwriting was very similar. So Phoenix is kind of kicking ass right now going, hey, Chicago, we think we might have your guy over here. He was also a nurse and he had medical background. So that's starting to fit more and more towards the the suspects. What is it? The mo- mo- motive? No. Um, nope. I have the word in th- here. That thing that they do on criminal minds. Profile. Profile. Yep, that's it. That's, that's it. it. Yeah. So he was fitting the profile more and more. He had lived on the South Side and... So this is Thomas. What's his name? Richard Russell Thomas had lived on the south side in Chicago, but he did frequent a car yard directly across the street from where Susan's arms had been found. During questioning by the Chicago police, he had actually freely admit to killing Susan, but later he did uh, end up recanting his confession and police didn't pursue this. They didn't really care because they had another lead. Kind of, they're going to drop Richard Russell Thomas. 
So they have a new suspect reported in the paper the same day that the Thomas development broke. Basically, a college student was caught fleeing from the scene of a burglary, brandishing a gun at police, and he possibly tried to kill one of the pursuing policemen to escape. So on June 26, 1946, 17-year-old William Herons was arrested for attempted burglary. He had been knocked unconscious during the scuffle, during the attempted burglary, by several blows to the head. We're going to get more into his background. So William Herons was born November 15th, 1928. He grew up in Lincolnwood, which is a suburb of Chicago, Illinois. His family was poor. His parents argued all the time and that led Herons to be like, all right, peace out, bitches. I'm going to go wander around the streets to get away from you guys arguing. And that actually kind of led him later to a life of crime. And he started stealing things and burglarizing people and places and da 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 da. At one point, he even stated that he stole for fun to relieve stress and never sold any of the stolen items. So the only thing that he did for financial gain was stealing like amounts of cash that were laying around. Basically, he would look for unlocked apartments, go in, snoop around and take their shit. Reportedly, now I only found this in one source, but I did find it to be very interesting. Um, Reportedly at age 11, he had told his mother he had seen a couple having sex. I don't know if this was during one of his burglaries or if this was something else, but his mother had told him that sex was dirty. And later on, when he kissed his girlfriend, he burst into tears and vomited, which this never ends well. Never. Which I just was like, I hope I was not that girl ever to anyone that they kissed me and then vomited. That would be <laughs> awful. <laughs> I, mean, I have uh, no I kind knowledge. Of for him. Yeah. Oh, it only gets mm-hmm. worse. At age 13, William was arrested for carrying a loaded gun. This ended up leading the police to search his home and they were somehow led to a unused storage shed on the roof of a nearby building where they found other stolen weapons along with furs, suits, radios, and jewelries that he had stolen. So they're finding all this shit. Now at this time when he's 13, he does admit to the burglaries and he was sent to the Gilbalt School for wayward boys for seven months. Now, I forgot to fact check this, but I hope it's true just for shits and giggles. The Gilbalt School for Wayward Boys was later, or not was, it later housed Charles Manson. So definitely interesting. Wait, later housed who? Charles Manson? Who is that? You don't don't know who Charles? Charles. We'll explain later. Yeah. Well, He's his he's his own story. Oh god, yeah. We don't have time to explain him today. (laughs) Yeah, I don't I I can't explain Charles Manson today because that will be a four hour episode. Okay. I trust you. Soon after his release from the Gilbalt School for Wayward Boys, he was arrested again for theft and he was now sent to St. Bede or Bede? I don't know, B-E-D-E. Bede, we're going to go with Bede Academy, where he actually really excelled at this place. Um, The St. Bede Academy is a college prep high school 
And it actually had a pretty interesting uh, history because it was established by monks. So I was like, well, that's kind of cool. But he excelled. His classmates remember that he was really good with the ladies. He got great marks. He was able to graduate a year early and he was accepted into the University of Chicago Special Learning Program majoring in electrical engineering just before he was released in 1945 while he was only 16 years old. So he shit. He's super smart. Like he Yeah, that's a turnaround. Right. So he excelled. Now to pay for some of the expenses for his college, he worked as an usher and as a docent. I had to Google what a docent was and there were a couple different meanings. So either it was like a teacher's aide or like a guide for a museum type thing. Doesn't clarify which one, but that's what he worked as part time. And also because college is expensive as shit. He resumed his burglaries because he had to pay for college somehow. So that's his history. That's his background, just in a nutshell. And after he's arrested on June 26, 1946, according to Herons, he was questioned around the clock for six consecutive days. Holy shit. And this is in connection with the Susan Degnan murder. He was reportedly beaten and starved during this time as well. He was denied access to see his parents for four days and he was denied the opportunity opportunity to speak to a lawyer for six days. So already not looking so good. What? I was just saying that's illegal. Uh, I don't know if it was in 1946. I don't think the Miranda rights were a thing then. Like I said, I didn't go down that rabbit hole. I was already too deep in this one. Oh, it just gets worse. Okay. Two psychiatrists, Dr. Haynes and Grinker, gave Herons sodium pentothal, which is also known as like their truth serum. They did so without a warrant, without Heron's consent, and without his parents' consent. But this form of interrogation now is considered to be, and I quote, of dubious value. I love the word dubious. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it says that under sodium pentothal, you're highly suggestible. Like, your subjects are highly suggestible to anything. So, there's no real value in the truth serum that's coming out with it. Because anything you say, they're going to be like, oh, sure, yeah, go for it. And actually, by the 1950s, most scientists had already kind of done away with the notion that a truth serum was valid. They were like, yeah, that's not, that's not a thing. It just hadn't trickled down to the courts in the 1940s. So he was just on that cutoff where it would have been like, yeah, that doesn't even matter. Now, under the influence of the sodium pentothal, police claimed that Heron spoke of an alternate personality named George, who had actually commit the murders, according to police. Herons claims to remember very little of the drug-induced interrogation because he was drugged up. Shocking. What a concept. <laughs> and police did do a due diligence and they did look for a separate individual named George, but they couldn't find anything. And um, Heron's middle name is actually George. So they're just kind of like connecting dots right back to Heron's. Now, when police asked what George's last name, Herons couldn't remember, but said it was like a murmuring name. And police translated this into Merman. So they were looking for a George Merman. And of course, the media had to go and be like, 
Merman Murder Man. And that's what they called him was George Murder Man. So definitely kind of gets worse and worse for this poor kid. And so what Herons is claiming is in dispute to the authorities' claims because the original transcripts of this drugged up interrogation have disappeared. Also shocking. Uh-huh. And actually in 1952, one of the doctors that administered the sodium pentothal, Dr. Grinker, came forward and stated that Herons never implicated himself in any of the killings during the time he was under the influence of the sodium pentothal. So again, wonderful. Yet another something. Reportedly in one of the interrogation sessions, a nurse poured ether on Herons while he was strapped to a bed and ether was used as anesthesia way back in the day. So he was likely going to pass out. It's a chemical he was going to go on conscious for so she waterboarded him with ether Uh uh-huh in another in another session a police officer reportedly punched him in the stomach while chanting details of the degnan murder in in an effort to spark recognition in herons and on the fifth day of him being in custody herons was given a lumbar puncture without anesthesia what where is the lumbar it's a it's spinal attack. Yeah. It's also known as a spinal tap. I'm going to vomit. So does that like fracture your spinal? No, nerve? that's used nowadays. Um, a lot of times they're trying to find different medical diagnoses with it, but they use anesthesia local anesthetic or anesthesia so that you don't fucking feel it they didn't give him any of that they just did it they literally just stabbed him in the spine with a needle Uh uh-huh yeah so directly after stabbing him in the spine with a needle they took him to do a polygraph test that they ended up having to reschedule because he was in too much pain to get an accurate reading from anything Gee. Um, so when they finally do the second polygraph test, they basically say the results came back as inconclusive. But John E. Reed and Fred E. Inbow published the test findings in a 1953 textbook called Lie Detection and Criminal Interrogation, where they contradicted what the police said. And in their book... The test was not inconclusive, but when it came to if Herons had killed six-year-old Susan Degnan, it establishes Herons as an innocent person. So are your heads spinning from all these discrepancies? The 40s was wild. I mean... The 40s in Chicago was just a shit show. It was something else. During the investigation of Herons in Susan Degnan's murder, the police do search Herons' residence and his college without a warrant, and they did find a scrapbook containing pictures of Nazi officials that belonged to war veteran Harry Gold, who had been burglarized by Herons the night of Susan Degnan's murder. And Harry Gold did live in the vicinity of the Degnans. So this again puts Herons back in the circle of suspicion. Um, They found a stolen copy of Psychopathia Sexuals, a 19, or not 19, an 1886 book by Richard Von Croft Edding about the study of sexual deviance. Don't know what that means. Didn't get into that, but that was interesting. This is not looking good for him. Uh Uh-huh. I know. They also found a stolen medical kit, but the elements in the kit couldn't have been or were not linked to the crime. There was no blood, hair, any biological material found on the tools. 
and the tools in the medical kit were too small to perform a dissection to begin with. However, the medical kit, he had used it to alter war bombs that he had also stolen. So it was used for a different purpose. A gun was found that was linked to a shooting. It was stolen from the apartment of Guy Roderick on December 3rd, 1945. Two nights after that, so on December 5th, a bullet had had crashed through the closed eighth floor apartment window of Marion Caldwell, wounding her. They were able to match ballistics from the gun to the bullet in Marion Caldwell's apartment. They don't know anything else about that. They don't know if it was an accident on purpose, or at least I don't. I didn't find anything on it. Um, But they did find that gun there. On July 2nd, 1946, Herons was transferred to Cook County Jail, where he was placed in the infirmary to recover from injuries. Now, also sometime after the sodium pentothal questioning and before the polygraph test, Herons had spoke with Captain Michael Ahern and... Captain Michael Ahern had said he gave an indirect confession. He basically said that his alter ego, George Mermans, might have been responsible. So they're kind of going off this theory that this George Mermans had create or had killed people, but George Mermans is William Herons. Now, Herons claims that he initially met George when he was 13 while he was under the influence of drugs, alcohol, whatever. And he claimed that it was George that would send him prowling at night and who robbed for pleasure and, quote, killed like a cobra. Definitely interesting that it's coming back to George again. And when cornered, cornered, George did relate his secrets to Herons. Herons said he always took the rap for George, like petty theft, assault, and now murder. Psychologists basically explain this as like a coping mechanism for Herons, that he made up this personality to keep his antisocial feelings and actions separate from the person who could be the average son and student and date nice girls and go to church. So like to just separate those lives. The authorities were skeptical of the George claims, and they just thought he was kind of laying the groundwork for an insanity defense. And then at this point, everything about George ends. I don't see anything else about George. He never comes up again. I don't know. It just kind of sounds far-fetched to me that the police would say that because, I mean, he literally said that, like, under the influence of drugs and under the influence of truth serum. It just, it kind of sounds far-fetched to me that... Truth serum isn't a thing anyways. Yeah. Now, some of the evidence i guess um they did have an eyewitness that stated they saw a figure walking toward the degnan residence with a shopping bag this witness described the man as being about five foot nine 170 pounds and about 35 years old which to me is pretty close to the description of the man that was seen leaving the elevator from the francis brown murder that's a pretty similar description And part of his description said that the suspect was wearing a light-colored fedora and a dark overcoat, but they couldn't make out the man's face. It was too dark, they couldn't see him. The same witness, however, uh, did not recognize a photo of Herons as the man, but later on in court, identified Herons as the man. That's not frustrating. Yeah, it was pointed out in court that the witness told police that the darkness had prevented him from seeing the man's face. But then in court, he said that he had seen Herons walk in front of a car's headlights. 
So he's wishy-washy. And before the trial, the witness's original statement just had too many inconsistency that they had that they had really just dismissed the this amount of this statement as evidence. They were like, all right, well, we don't freaking know what you're doing or what you're saying, so we're going to move on. Was this by chance the prosecution's witness? Yeah. Okay. Of course. Um, Because the defense was kind of, the, the defense was a little shitty. Not because of Heron's, but because his lawyers were shitty. So on June 30th, 1946, Captain Emmett Evans told newspaper that Heron's had been cleared of suspicion from Francis Brown's murder because the fingerprint that they found on the door jam didn't match. But 12 days later, Chief of Detectives Walter Storms confirmed the bloody smudge as Heron's. What the fuck? This poor boy got railroaded. Mm -hmm. So at Heron's sentencing, Sergeant Thomas Laffey, 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 I spelt his name wrong right there. Sergeant Thomas Laffey, the Chicago PD's fingerprint expert, testified that the end joint of the bloody print had an eight-point comparison to Heron's and the middle joint a six-point comparison. Oh, the middle joint didn't live up to Laffey's personal standards of seven or eight points to make a positive identification match. So they're basically saying one print does, one doesn't. Like they're back, it's wishy-washy all over the place for these people. Um, Another source of contention with the brown crime scene fingerprint is that the fingerprint at the crime scene looks like it was rolled. What that basically means is it looks like they physically took his thumb, rolled it like they would to get a person's fingerprints because when you're rolling a person's fingerprints, you go from side to side. Like you cover that whole bitch. They're saying that looks like that was rolled, not like it was a smudged fingerprint. And that kind of brought on some suspicion that that fingerprint was maybe planted there by police to connect Francis's Brown or Francis Brown's murder to Heron. No, I don't think they do that. Never. Not, not the Chicago police in the 40s. Never. Not when the they fucking have... media's being douchebags about how they're handling no. the case. Never. They have been like primo this whole time they've been on their shit. I refuse to believe this. I know. What the fuck? Haka. <laughs> yeah. So that was the, the fingerprint for the Francis Brown case. The ransom note for the Susan Degnan case was initially examined by Chicago Crime Detection Lab, but they couldn't find any prints at the time. So Captain Timothy O'Connor took the note to the FBI Crime Lab in Washington on January 8th. Now keep in mind, Susan's murder was on January 7th. So he's he's on it. He's going to the FBI pretty quickly. They were basically hoping to use the FBI's more sophisticated technology because, you know, the FBI is a little bit you know, fancier. And the FBI was able to actually raise fingerprints. Now, at this time, the fingerprints did not stay. They basically did a whole bunch of things that caused chemical reactions that would show the prints and they would immediately photograph the prints and then the prints would disappear. The FBI, they took photos of the prints and did get two prints on the front of the card or on the front of the letter, but not on the back of it, which, I mean, they photographed both sides. The prints that the FBI were able to find, they sent it back to Chicago PD. Laffey examined them and stated to the fucking press that they were, and I quote, 
so incomplete that it is impossible to classify them. Now, despite checking these incomplete prints with everyone arrested between January 1946 and June 1946, they were not able to find a match even though Herons had previously been arrested and fingerprinted on May 1st, 1946 for weapons charges. So if they were comparing this print to everyone that came through that had to give their fingerprints in that time frame, they would have connected Herons in May, not later on. He was also arrested for burglary on June 26th. Uh, and then, so, sorry, this is when he was arrested for burglary on June 26th. Three days later, Laffey announced a nine-point comparison match to Heron's left little finger with one of the prints. So all they're connecting things really quickly all of a sudden. And from what I could find, a nine-point of comparison were the loops that they could find. But also, it's only nine points of comparison. And this could have matched 65% of the population. Holy shit. At the time, the FBI handbooks Standards regarding fingerprint identification required 12 points of comparison for a 100% positive identification. So you're short three points there, buddy. Yeah, I mean, if it's still 65% of the population, then you, you can't do anything, right? Right. Now, months, months after the FBI had returned the note and the photo photographs, of the note with the fingerprints to the Chicago Police Department, the Chicago Police announced that Laffey had discovered a palm print on the reverse side of the note that they claimed matched Herons to a to ten points of comparison. How the fuck would the FBI miss a palm print on the back of the note? At this point, even the FBI is like, "Fuck y'all, y'all do it yourself. Don't call me again." <laughs> I was like, how how did you lift a print months later? You guys couldn't lift a print to begin with. You had to send it to the FBI to lift a fucking print. And they did not get a palm print. But now you're getting a palm print? What is happening? God, I wish this guy got a lawyer from the janitor's union. Oh, God, I wish he did too. But he wasn't a janitor. No other prints were found on the note. Prompting police chief Walter Storm to say that this shows that Herons was found to be the only person that handled the note. Again, this is fucked up because first of all, they couldn't find any prints on the note originally, which is why they sent it to the FBI for further processing. Secondly, Captain O'Connor had only mentioned two prints on the one side of the fucking note. One side of the note, they had only found two prints, two, dose. Um, the FBI couldn't find anything again. The third print wasn't discovered. So they found a third print on the back of the card, like a fingerprint. And then they found a palm print is what they're saying. Now the third print was discovered early July, six months later, about two weeks after Herons was arrested. They had been working on this fucking case for six months at this point, six months. To top all of this off, to even further fucking push limits here the original letter the original ransom note was given to chicago daily news reporter frank san hamill physically given to him because he claimed to have seen indentation writing so like you know when you have a piece of paper you write on it tear it off there's an indentation on the next piece of paper frank san hamill claimed 
And this is after the FBI process, processed it. He claimed to have seen indentation writing on a photograph. So they gave him the original letter for him to look into it more. So they broke the chain of custody. This is painful. Yes, they broke the chain of custody with the ransom letter. That does, however, mean that the note is inadmissible as evidence in court. They cannot use it anymore, which is fucked up. But also that means that him saying that no one else handled the notes is a falsehood because clearly Frank Sanhamel fucking handled the note. On the plus side, they can't use it in, in, uh, shit, fuck. In trial. How do you say his name? Hiron? Heron? Heron? I've been saying it They can't use it. So they can't use it in Heron's trial. But also if they do find somebody, they can't use it in that fucking trial either. So this is just trash at this point. No, they don't go to trial. Anyways. <laughs> okay. 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 So now let's top this off. Okay. Yeah, let's top this off even more though. By the time that the Chicago Police Crime Lab initially got the letter, Charles Wilson, the chief of the Chicago Crime Detection Lab, stated, and this is a quote, when we got the Degnan note, it came late after other people had photographed it and handled it. He's already saying people are touching this and handling it before they got it in January. And FBI noted, this is another quote, it is evident that the note has been handled considerably. Okay. Again, we're just contradicting everything that Chief Walter Storms is stating about herons. Like, I, I, I was like, what the fuck? Even better, uh, Laffy, good old Laffy, testified during the September 15th, 1946 sentencing hearing that one more fingerprint on the reverse side of the note was linked to Herons. And he all of a sudden upped this to a 10 points of comparison. They keep upping the comparisons. And eventually the comparisons end up at 12 points of comparison, saying that it's 100% identification. So it just, they keep upping it. I don't know how. I have a request to just, from here on out, call this man laughable instead of laughing. <laughs> Laffy. Sorry, I gotta call him Laffy. That's what he is oh. in my notes. Well, in my notes, he's laughable. Yeah. And the prints that the FBI lifted, neither of those were matched to Herons. It was all the prints that were found afterwards that were matched to Herons. So, yeah, that's great. So they basically say this is indisputable proof of his culpability. Was that a quote? The indisputable part was, yes. <laughs> so just this whole thing, they were, I mean, the, the fingerprints the FBI found, they were barely mentioned ever in court. They were like raised over. Like, oh, okay, yeah, those, okay, we're going to move past that. Now, as further proof that Heron's defense was shitty, his attor- attorneys didn't do really anything because they believed him to be guilty and their goal was to keep him from the death penalty. So not only did he have shitty defense attorneys, they had shitty evidence and his defense attorneys were just like, we just don't want you to die. Oh my God. His lawyers didn't raise any objections. They didn't, they didn't even bring up the broken chain of custody issues. They just were like, oh, okay, sure. In... 2002, a clemency petition, which is basically a petition to be pardoned, they did question the validity of the prints on the ransom note due to the timing, discoveries, and all of that stuff. Um, but that was in 2002, well after 
the fact. Yeah, that's, um, like, literally, what, 50 years? More yeah. than that? So, so that's the fingerprints. And then we're going to get into some handwriting. Now, handwriting analysis could not actually link Karen's handwriting to the lipstick message. They couldn't prove, again, we're going to be wishy-washy with all of this shit. Even the actual handwriting on the note itself had supposedly been discredited. They couldn't prove it was Heron's. Handwriting experts both attached to Chicago PD and independent experts at the time believed that Heron's had no connection to the note or the wall scribble. They basically looked at existing samples of his handwriting, looked at all that shit, and went, that's not his. Why didn't they do this before? They did this during the investigation. Oh. Oh, my bad. I was thinking 2002. No, sorry. I'm jumping around in dates. But that was... So we're back to 46. Now, expert George W. Schwartz was brought in to give his opinion. And he stated the... And this is another quote. The individual characteristics in the two writings do not compare in any respect. So he's saying, yeah, no, these aren't... No. And then another, a third handwriting expert, Herbert J. Walter, and this is the handwriting expert that worked on the Lindenburg baby kidnapping in 1932. What? Oh, I was just going to say, so this guy knows his shit. Pretty respected. Um, <laughs> sure. Um, so he examined the document and he declared that Herons did write the ransom note and the lipstick scrawl on the wall, but had attempted to disguise his handwriting. However, this is a direct contradiction of his own words early on in the case when he said, and I quote, a few superficial similarities and a great many dissimilarities. I love this case. (laughs) Also, possibly unrelated, my head hurts. I think it's probably related. (laughs) Jesus Christ. In 1996, FBI handwriting analyst David Grimes declared that this was not William Heron's handwriting. Did not match. This is 96, years and years later. They did not match. They even found, Brie mentioned it earlier because she's ruining my shit. They did find that the writing from the lipstick message on the wall and the ransom note, those did not even match each other. They were not done by the same person. So that was 1996. I guessed it 10 pages later. Earlier. Uh, We're on page 9 of 14. Don't get excited. Five pages. Oh, I'm sorry. We're moving on to 10 of 14. So now a very disturbing theory in this case is that they don't believe that the killer left the lipstick scrawl on the wall. They believe that a reporter who had made it to the crime scene first had left the lipstick scrawl on the wall for it to be more sensationalized. That is just a theory. That is not proven. That is not factual. That's a theory. Conspiracy theories, y'all. One on one. You heard it here on Hell on Heels. Yes. That's disgusting. Yeah. So again, I just nothing was done correctly for poor Herons. His, like I said, his defense attorney attorneys just felt like he was guilty. And they were like, well, we're just trying to save your life, bro. Um, they're just trying to make it so that he's not in the electric chair. You know? Hey, thanks. Mm-hmm. 
And even the prosecuting attorney was unsure if he could get a conviction. And this is yet another quote. The small likelihood of a successful murder prosecution of William Herron's early prompted the state's attorney's office to seek out and obtain the cooperative help of defense counsel and through them that of their client. All the prosecution had in the Degnan case was a partial fingerprint on the ransom note. And it was at this stage of the investigation that defense counsel moved forward in cooperation with my office. And that is state attorney Tui. 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 I'm calling him Tui and I hope it's wrong. So basically, Heron's lawyers pressured him to take the plea bargain. And he would serve one life sentence if he confessed to the murders of Josephine Ross, Francis Brown, and Susan Degnan. That's a plea deal? Uh-huh. I mean, technically it's a plea deal because the death sentence was on, right? Mm-hmm. So either he took a life sentence and he lived or he got the death penalty. But they yeah, didn't but have any evidence. Yeah, I like know. that's not a plea deal when you have no evidence. That's a plea deal when you have like stacked evidence. That's a plea deal. This is bullshit. Yeah. It's because he was popularized in media for like so long. And I mean, like everybody. It wasn't very long. It was not no. very long that Herons was suspected. He was initially arrested in June, and they just connected him within three days to all these things because they had someone they could, could, could connect him with. But th- And their profile that- of the man that did it is a 35 to 40-year-old man with a medical or meat-cutting background. He, ha- he is 17 years old. He does not have either of those. Exactly. I then just what the fuck? exactly so Aaron's lawyers basically just pressured him to to take this and his, his parents fucking garbage attorneys oh his fucking garbage attorneys they began drafting a confession actually using the Chicago Tribune article as a guide so they were physically looking at the fucking news and using that as a guide for his written confession where is he while they're writing this? He's there. He doesn't write it. No. Because they're pressuring him into it. He is a young, influenceable kid. Like, he's going to do things that he... They're telling him he's going to get the death penalty. He's going to die if they go to trial. He is scared for his life. And he's just doing what the adults are telling him to do. This is another quote. As it turned out, the Tribune article was very helpful as it provided me with a lot of details I didn't know. My attorneys rarely changed anything outright, but I could tell by their faces if I made a mistake or they would say, now, Bill, is that really what happened? Then I would change my story because obviously it went against what was known in the Tribune. That is Heron saying I was doing what I was fucking told. Herons and his parents did sign the confession and both party agrees to, agreed to the date of July 30th. Let's remember he was arrested on June 26th. This is a fucking month later. So on July 30th, they go into Tui's office and there are several reporters assembled to ask Herons questions where Tui himself made this speech. Herons basically sat there like, what the fuck are we talking about here? Herons basically blames Tui, the prosecuting attorney and he states it was Tui himself 
After assembling all the officials, including attorneys and policemen, he began a preamble about how long everyone had waited to get a confession from me, but at last the truth was going to be told. He kept emphasizing the word truth, and I asked him if he really wanted the truth. He assured me that he did. Now, Tui made a big deal about, having, about hearing the truth. Now, when I was being forced to lie to save myself, it made me angry. So I told them to the truth and everyone got very upset. So he basically said it was not me. I did. He was supposed to do this confession and be like, he ended up saying it wasn't me. So now Tui's pissed and he's like, all right, I'm going to retract that previous plea deal. And they gave him another plea deal with a few minor changes. They changed it to three life terms to run consecutively. And they continue to threaten him with the, death penalty if they went to the went to trial they also threatened to charge him with the murder of estelle carey even though herons was attending the gilbalt school for wayward boys at the time of that murder they're just saying we're gonna just also charge you with this you already murdered three other like we're just gonna charge you like they're just adding things on um again his fucking shitty first like one life sentence three people next three life sentences four people how do you even connect a guy to a fourth murder he would have been randomly he would have been 13 years old for that one that they threatened to charge him with 13 years old so his own fucking lawyers who were shitty they were already mad that he backed out of the original plea bargain they just are like it's just awful and Tui announced And again, he just is like, fine, I'll do the fucking confession. So he announced to the press that he would try um, Herons for the death of Susan and Francis Brown if they did go to trial. So he agrees to the new bargain. And yet another public meeting was held. But this time Herons talked and answered questions. He even was reenacting parts of the murders to which he had confessed. However, I think it was so sensationalized. He probably had all the details from media. I'm not sure on that one, but it was absolutely crazy. Well, I mean, he was obviously coached, too, in some of this. Mm -hmm. Heavily. Yeah. Yeah. Now, some of the detectives, like Detective Ahern, did change his opinion. Because he initially did not believe that Herons was culpable. But he did change it. And he was like, "Um, after hearing how familiar Herons was with the victim Francis's brown apartment, I do think he is culpable. So they're wishy-washy throughout the whole fucking thing. There's no proof at all. No, duh, you're wishy-washy. Yeah. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Keep going. Yeah. In the confession, they, they needed a murder weapon. So Herons stated that he disposed of a hunting knife, which he had dismembered Susan Degna with, on an elevated subway track near the scene of the murder. Police never searched for this hunting knife, but reporters did. And the reporters supposedly kind of asked the track crew if they had found a knife. The train track crew said they had found it on the track and they kept it in the Granville Station storage room. And they basically just went and got the knife and they found that it belonged to the same guy, Roderick, the same person who had his Colt pistol stolen that was also found in Heron's possession. Now, Herons has his own story. He basically says that he didn't want his mom to see that hunting knife, so he threw it there. 
and I know there were more details with it, but I couldn't find the details as to why he didn't want his mom to see it. Because, like, I would rather have my mom see me with a knife than a gun, I guess. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, I was thinking that. So, Herons does take full responsibility for the three murders on August 7th, 1946. And the prosecution had him reenact the crime in the Degnan home in public and in front of the press. They are just fucking making him a villain. I mean, that's an infringement on his rights, right? I don't think so. Not if he confessed. Yeah, if he confessed. But I mean, you make the person, like, reenact the entire scene. Yeah, they can do that. Yeah. he. I mean, he could have said no. They couldn't have physically forced him yeah. to do anything. Well, Herons later said that he did confess to save his own life. On September 4th, 1946, with Herons' parents and the victim's families there and the Chief Just uh, Justice Harold G. Ward presiding. Herons admit his guilt on the burglary and murder burglary and murder charges. Um, that night, Herons actually tried to hang himself in his cell. He timed it co- to coincide with a shift change for the prison guards. He was discovered before he died, um, and later said that the despair drove him to attempt suicide. And this is a quote: "Everyone believed I was guilty. If I weren't alive, I felt I could avoid being adjudged guilty by the law and thereby gain some victory. But I wasn't successful even at that. Before I walked into the courtroom, my counselor told me my counsel told me to just enter a plea of guilty and keep my mouth shut afterwards. I didn't even have a trial. He goes on to try to commit suicide six different times. Five different I times. Six times total. Oh my so, god. That's amazing. Yeah, September 5th, 1946, after more evidence was written into, onto the record and blah, 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 uh, prosecution and defense make their closing statements. And who was the justice that I just said his fucking name? Justice Ward formally sentences Herons to three life terms and he begins serving his terms. Reportedly, as Heron waited to be transferred to the Stateville prison from Cook County Jail, Sheriff Michael. Michael McClock, I don't know how to say his last name. Sheriff Michael, good old Michael, asked Herons. No, it's there's U's and H's and weird spots. I don't know. This sheriff asked Herons if Susan Degnan had suffered, to which Herons answered, and I quote, I can't tell you if she suffered. Oh, I spelled his name wrong. That's why it's Macaulay, M U L C A H Y. Malky? I don't know. The sheriff. I can't tell you if she suffered, Sheriff. I didn't kill her. Tell Mr. Degnan to please look after his own daughters because whoever killed Susan is still out there. So he's like still saying it wasn't me. Within days of his confession in open court, Herons denied any responsibility for the murders. In total, they did find 29 inconsistencies that had been found in the confession with the facts of the crime. So basically... When did they find these? Uh, They find this throughout time. A long time. Interesting. So total, to date, they have found 29 inconsistencies. And basically when they find things like this, it's become an understanding that these are a clear indicator of false confessions. Really? No joke. You're... Those are not false confessions. No what fucking you, way. What are you talking damned. about? What? I'm damned. It's I wild. 
some details did seem to match, like the theory that Susan Degnan was dismembered with a hunting knife and Herons confessed to throwing a hunting knife and things like that. But he still wasn't a surgeon. He still didn't have that experience. And they never actually connected the hunting knife to the murders because reporters got to it first. Things kind of weren't matching up. And actually, uh, Mary Jane Blanchard, daughter of Josephine Ross, was one of the first dissenters. And she was quoted saying in 1946, I cannot believe that young Herons murdered my mother. He just does not fit into the picture of my mother's death. I have looked at all the things Heron stole and there was nothing of my mother's things among them. So even some of the victims' families are like, mm, I don't think so. During Heron's post-conviction petition in 1952, state attorney Tui admitted under oath that he not only knew about the sodium pentothal procedure, but he had authorized it and paid Grinker's, Dr. Grinker's $1,000 and that same year, Dr. Grinker revealed that Herons had never implicated himself in the murder. I mean, yeah, literally, like, from the beginning, like, he was on this truth serum, and he literally, I mean, he probably, like, knew something about the murders and stuff that he was being questioned on, and he literally, like, said that it was a different personality because th they were... But that was under the truth <laughs> serum. He was suggestible. Exactly. Exactly. No, like, they, I mean, essentially, he was saying, like, yeah, you know, like, I don't remember it, but, like, maybe, like, my alternate personality did it. Yeah, it gets even better. So they do have <laughs> alternative suspects. So the main one is one that we've already touched on, and that is Richard, Richard Russell Thomas, the man from Phoenix, Arizona. He did confess to the crime. Yes, he did recount it or recant it. But he had been convicted of attempted extortion with a ransom note that threatened the kidnapping of a little girl. Um, handwriting experts had already kind of linked him there. They said everything seemed to match with the structure and the letters formatted and styles. He was in Chicago at the time of the Degnan murder. He did confess to the crime while he was waiting for sentencing for molesting his own daughter. He had a history of, of violence, including spousal abuse. He was a nurse and was known to masquerade as a surgeon. And he often told his friends that he was a doctor and he would steal surgical supplies. And he matched the profile. He did match the profile that the Chicago police had initially created. He frequented the car lot that was across from where they found Susan's arms and he was a known burglar and like everything's matching up to be this Thomas dude this Richard something Thomas he did die in 1974 while in prison and all the records and evidence during the interrogation um, regarding the Chicago murders has either been lost or destroyed there's that <laughs> another suspect could be George Hodel who I am sure we will cover in another story more in depth, but he's a physician that was suspected of being a serial killer that was also linked to the Black Dahlia and the Zodiac killer, killer murders. So they're very much trying to link everyone. Now some prison life about Herons. He, he did learn several trades, including electronics and television slash radio repair, and he had his own prison repair shop. Um, in February of 1972, he became the first prisoner in Illinois' history to earn a four-year college degree. 
He got a Bachelor of Arts. He ended up earning a total of 250 course credits, passing all of the courses. He was, however, prohibited from taking classes like physics, chemistry, and celestial navigation. He Why? managed, at, I, because if he say. can navigate the stars, he can run away. I don't know. He <laughs> he managed a garment factory. Hey, you know, you know where the North Star is, so you can just go to that. Well. You know. He managed a garment factory for five years, and I mean, that meant he was overseeing 350 inmates. He was transferred to the Vienna Correctional Center, where he actually set up their entire educational educational program, and he helped prisoners earn their GEDs, and he actually helped them all with their appeals. So he was very educated. Educated, yes. <laughs> he was given given an institutional parole for the Degnan murder in 1965, and in 1966 he was discharged on that case. So he began serving his second life sentence in '66 for the other two murders. Basically, they said for the Degnan case, we're gonna just like clear you off of that one. You're done. He thanks. Uh huh. Uh huh. Now parole policies of the day were kind of fucked up. He was considered rehabilitate, rehabilitated by prison authorities. And so the Degnan case could no longer legally but be put forward as a reason to deny parole. But based on the regulations of 1946, Heron should have been discharged from the Brown murder in 1975 and from all remaining charges in 1983. However, in 1973, Illinois moved the focus from rehabilitation to punishment and deterrence which then blocked his moves to release Herons. Jesus fuck. Okay. In 1983, 7th District U.S. Court of Appeals ruled that it was unconstitutional to refuse parole on deterrence grounds to make inmates convicted before 73. So basically, they did order them to release... Uh, they did order Illinois to release Herons immediately, but the brother and sister of Susan Degnan went public pleading for authority authorities to fight the ruling. And basically it was fought and Attorney General Neil Hartigan stated, only God and Herons know how many other women were murdered. Now a bleeding heart do-gooder decides that Herons is rehabilitated and should go free. I'm going to make sure that kill-crazed animal stays where he is. They passed uh, a resolution that as the confessed murders of Susan, um, that the opinion of the chamber is that the released release of William Herons at this time would be detrimental to the best interest of the people of the state. So they did not release him. Um, in 1975, he was transferred to a minimum security Vienna Correctional um, Center in Illinois. And then in 1998, he requested to go to Dixon Correctional Center, minimum, minimum security. Um, he did reside in the hospital ward because he suffered from diabetes and his legs were swollen and he had limited eyesight and he was confined to a wheelchair. He did continue his efforts to win clemency, which again is basically getting pardoned. In 2002, uh, Lawrence C. Marshall and his team filed a petition on Heron's behalf seeking clemency and it was denied. Um, and basically everything's being denied because of these confessions that he was he he had done a former los angeles police officer steve hodel who had spent 25 years on the lapd police force met herons in 2003 
when he was investigating the murders further, he was actually convinced that Herons was innocent of the crimes. And he is quoted saying, I felt compelled to write an appeal to the Illinois Prisoner Review Board stating my professional belief that Herons is innocent. Thank God. Literally, I mean, this poor guy has been in prison for 50 years. And I mean, son of a bitch. So his most recent parole here. A role hearing on July 26, 2007, the review board decision was 14 to 0 vote against parole. I mean, I get it. It's because of the confessions, but at the same they time, if you have are... enough evidence to show that it is likely a coerced, coerced confession, it just is crazy. From what I could find, it was just fucking crazy. And one of these board members stated, God will forgive forgive you, but the state won't. They did, however, decide that he is up for review once a year from then on. But in February 2012, due to complications with his diabetes, he was taken to Illinois Medical Center and he was found dead in his cell on March 26, 2012. In total, Herons had applied for release over 30 times during the years, never wavering from his story of innocence. Do you guys... Now, obviously, this was very biased. I have what I could find in articles. But do you guys think he was guilty? No. He was innocent as fuck. Okay, that's... I mean, literally from the the get-go, like, everything that was against him was like altered right i mean he had a completely coerced confession multiple times and he was 17 when he was tried i mean i don't know about illinois type stuff i know that in texas you're legally tried as an adult at 17 but i don't know about Illinois. it was also 1946 exactly yeah and so yeah it just the hand like i said it the, just i i went down a fucking bathroom. rabbit hole i saw this and went oh that'll be like a quickie one no <laughs> i feel like the they handwriting did. the background the, the everything just i don't see it oh all. i forgot about pictures as we were going forward there are two other pictures one of them being richard thomas the person that i think likely did commit the crime and then the last one is actually herons um in 1946 and 2012-ish time frame okay so. first of all he was a stunner mm-hmm. and yes he's very mm-hmm. handsome he was and then cute. yeah he just looks like a grandpa like mm-hmm. i feel so bad for him because i personally i feel like chicago fucked over so many people Not only Richard Thomas, but also Herons and the families of the victims. Because Mm -hmm. if he, I'll say if, I personally feel like he's innocent as hell. But if he is innocent, then they never got justice. Right. Uh, Yeah, I, I definitely, I personally, I feel if I were on that jury and his defense attorneys did their fucking jobs. 
There is no fucking way he would have been convicted. There is no way. There are but too many defense attorneys didn't do well, their jobs. You said that like they didn't make any. They made no effort objections or anything in court. I mean, they did nothing except for just coerce him into making this confession. I just want to know who paid it's them off. It's almost as if like his defense attorneys wanted him to be put in prison. Well, I just want to know and, who like, paid him off. Like who it. paid off the defense attorneys? Who paid off all these different people to say these different things? Who is doing this? Who is pushing this? What the fuck? The police department. The police department can't afford that. This is um, emotional payback for last week, Amanda. After your second cannibal story. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I still maintain people love the cannibal stories. I don't know me For sure. But um, you'll have to email uh, if you guys like the cannibal stories. Yes. Or dislike the cannibal stories. (laughs) Well, that's my story. So now, Amanda, are you going to be able to follow that up? I think so. This was pretty fun. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm just going to encourage you to yell it out when you know what it is. Because I'm assuming. No. (laughs) Because I'm assuming uh, that you'll discover it pretty quickly when I start describing it. When I start describing it. Okay. So there's really not much known about this cryptid uh, but I was able to find a lot of good stories so I did as much research as I could and then I pulled a couple of just really good personal stories so these creatures resemble children between the ages of 6 and 16 they're usually in pairs and one is usually much older oh 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 black eyed kids yep this is the black-eyed kids or black-eyed children or BEK. They're, they're known as all three. So usually when they're seen, one is like a teenager is usually a lot, or he or she is usually a lot older, and the other one's like a single-digit kid. And the older one is known as the spokesperson, and they're the ones that do all the talking, while the child usually is pretty quiet and they look down. They're just perceived as shy they're said to have pale skin and completely black eyes and most of the time and for most of the conversation they're covered by hoods hats or long bangs they're usually seen hitchhiking begging or knocking on doors or windows to houses some people report seeing the children playing together or singing old nursery rhymes like old man long legs well that's creepy or he jumped into a bramble bush but when they notice you watching I've never them, heard any of those I haven't either. But when they notice you watching them, they just stop dead in their tracks and stare at you. That is creepy. What they wear ranges in reports to hooded sweaters and or hats to older style or outdated clothes. And a lot of people say they're not really dressed for the season, yet they're completely unfazed. So I know in one story I read... This woman said it was like snowing outside in like fucking Wisconsin or something like where it gets really cold. But the black eyed child that she saw was in was on her porch in a hoodie and shorts. And he just looked completely fine. Like he wasn't shivering, didn't seem cold. So it was really weird. They only repeat one or two sentences and they use either severely outdated words Or just odd speech patterns. So they'll say, can I use your telegraph in one story? And the woman's like, I don't don't have a telegraph. This is not a thing anymore. 
Or they'll say, can you please invite me into your house? May I enter the premises? Just things that children usually wouldn't say. Yeah. People often report feeling odd beforehand. And there's usually no people around and no sounds. No birds, no crickets, no cars, nothing. The lights are known to flicker. Uh, There's also reports of being drawn to the door or window before the kids are even noticed. No. While dealing with black-eyed kids, people experience an extreme sense of dread, putrid smells, nausea. Some people said that time stopped or just slowed down significantly. Uh, Mind control, like being pulled to the door or realizing that your hand is moving towards the door to open it and then you're like, wait, what the fuck? They also experience electronic interference, 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 (laughs) and lights flickering, or sometimes they've been reported to just go out completely. People that invite them inside have symptoms like feeling sick when they've previously been healthy, long-time anxiety and nightmares, suffering from nosebleeds, or developing and even succumbing to cancer. However, their powers are widely unknown because not many people have let them inside. And the ones that have rarely live to talk about it. Well, don't let them inside. Fuck. (laughs) Most people don't from what I read. I would be like, sorry, kid. Fucking stay the fuck out. Yeah, no, get out. Like, even if you have regular eyes, I don't want you in my house. I don't fucking know you. Who are you? Go away. (laughs) I mean, if a random, like, kid comes to your door and, like, speaks to you in a... Don't ask me if I have a telegraph. The answer is no. Yeah. Can I please use your telegraph? No. No. No, I I don't have one. Goodbye. How about slam the door? I use the telegraph and you go away. How about that? Some people argue that BEK are aliens or alien-human hybrids. Some people say they're demons. Some argue they're vampires. And that's why they can't come inside your house unless you invite them. Permission. Some say they're ghosts or even fairies. And there are even a few reports of BEK having talon-like feet. So there's a book called Your Haunted Lives. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Talon-like feet, like a bird? Yeah, like an eagle's foot. Like it's not necessarily a sparrow. Like they have actual talons on the end of their bird feet. So in this book called Your Haunted Lives, The Black-Eyed Kids. Did you read it? Did you read it? No. I could not find it, but I did find this little excerpt online. This book claims the kids may be a product of something called, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Otkon, it's O-T-K-O-N, and is spoken of in ancient Iroquois Indian legends. According to this legend, the Iroquois Indians believed in a dark power called the Otkon that could take over children and an evil one who would mate with human females to produce black-eyed, chalky-skinned children. These children were killed by the tribe soon after birth and burned to stop from resurrecting. So they are vampires. According to this, kind of. But children wandering alone in the woods could also be taken over by the Otcon and reemerge with black eyes and pale skin, acting nervously while repeating themselves over and over. Their goal was to destroy the tribe and infect all of the people with the Otcon. However, many people... Slightly not skeptical, possibly rational people argue that the children are just wearing contact lenses as part of a prank. 
that they're on drugs or they have some kind of blown pupil condition because that could potentially give the impression of dark eyes, if not completely black eyes. Most tabloids report that stories of BEK have been around since the 1980s. However, most sources say that the tale began in 1996 with Brian Bethel, which there is a picture of. You can go ahead and go to the pictures. It's just a couple of pictures of black-eyed kids. And then Brian Bethel is the last one. He does have a sparkle in his eye in this one, though. I liked that one, yeah. (laughs) He seems very excited to be talking about this. He does. He Most sources say that the tale began in 1996 with Brian Bethel, a reporter from Texas. Uh, like I said, I watched multiple interviews where he recounted his experience. If you just Google or go to YouTube and type in Brian Bethel, B-E-T-H-E-L-B-E-K, like tons of them come up. So he is a reporter, a newspaper reporter. Most of the time he reported on politics or big stories that are happening at the time but he did end up writing a story after this happened to him so he says that he pulled into a parking lot late one evening to write a check a lot of interviews he said that it was kind of getting late in the evening and he realized that he had to pay this bill and he had to pay it today so he rushed out and he stopped in this like dollar theater parking lot. He said it was oddly quiet and deserted, but he felt kind of safe because he was in the bright lights of the marquee sign. And he's looking down, he's writing this check. He didn't notice two boys approaching his car until the older one of them knocked on the window. So he rolled the window down. He didn't roll it all the way down, maybe like halfway And that's when he was immediately hit with an intense fear. The older boy told him that they wanted to see a movie, but they left their money at home. And he asked Bethel for a ride to their mother's house. Bethel slowly began feeling like an overwhelming sense of what he called primal fear. So it just keep, it kept getting worse and worse. You roll that window right back up, sir. You just... (laughs) Well, he said that the boy, the spokesman, he said that it was almost like he could tell he was getting uneasy. So he started to kind of comfort him. He assured him that it wouldn't take long to drive him back home. And they were just kids and that they didn't have a gun. And Bethel was like, asked about a gun. Yeah, he was really put off by that comment. He said that the unwarranted explanation would just made him really uncomfortable. And he said it was almost like he had told him we don't need a gun. He said he didn't say that, but I guess the manner in which he said it, that's how Bethel kind of took it. If you wanted to watch a movie, though, like with, you know, your younger brother or something and you forgot cash, you know, why don't you just like ask the guy for money and not ask him to drive you to your mom's house? I mean, I get it. Like they're alone and they're kids. Well, another thing he said was that uh, I think the guys, the kids had asked to see Mortal Kombat is what I read in one source. And Bethel said that the movie they wanted to see was already like an hour in. So he was like, even if I take you home and come back, the movie's going to be almost over. It's already an hour in. They miss very important plot points. No one cares at that point. Yeah. 
So at this point, Bethel realized that his hand was moving towards the door to unlock them. And he said he told himself, I don't remember doing that. You're not letting them in. Move your hand away. And the older boy began to get angry and he kept telling Bethel, we need in your car. When he looked back at the boys is when he realized their eyes were cold, black, soulless orbs. And he said this is when he stated he was more frightened than he's ever been in his entire life. And he pulled out of the parking lot as fast as he could. But when he looked in his rearview mirror, they were completely gone. Like they had vanished. There was nowhere for him to hide. They were just poof. Poof. Like fairies. They just poofed away. Mm Mm-hmm. So he wrote a... Or they turned into bats and flew away. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or that. (laughs) Yeah. He wrote about what he had went through afterwards, which is argued to be the first report of its kind. Afterwards, he had tons of people reach out to tell him about their experiences. But a lot of people question his story because apparently he had a blog And about a month beforehand, he had written a post talking about creating a creature just with collective thought. And he said something along the lines of, can we create something like Bloody Mary with just collective force of will? And I took this as kind of like a tulpa. I don't know if I'm saying this right. Have you ever heard of that? No. So a tulpa, according to Wikipedia, is... A concept in theosophy, mysticism, and the paranormal of a being or an object which is created through spiritual or mental powers. So basically, a tulpa is an entity that you create in your mind, but it acts independently of and parallel to your own consciousness. They are able to think, they have their own free will, emotions, and memories. A tulpa is kind of like a sentient person living in your head but it's separate from you. Almost, I guess, kind of like an imaginary friend, but they become real. That's kind of creepy, though, because, like, my imaginary friends as a child, one of them was hit by a train. That was actually my imaginary boyfriend. Thank you. I don't Uh, know what that says about you psychologically. (laughs) I'm just saying, like, if that's the case and I created someone, I made them be hit by a train. I don't like that. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. I don't know what that says about you psychologically, but it says a lot about why that you and I are friends. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you about that story another day. (laughs) So are y'all ready for some stories that I was able to pull offline? Mm -hmm. I don't have names of people for all of them, but I was able to find some names. So I'll give the names if I found them along with the stories. One woman reported she was driving home when she saw two kids walking up the hill. She pulled over and asked them if they were all right and if they wanted her to call their mom. One of the kids said, let me in the car. She was like, no, but I'll call your mom. And she then stated the other kid told her, let us in the car. And she was overtaken with a feeling of just doom. And that's when she saw that they were both extremely pale with black eyes. And she immediately started reciting St. Michael's prayer and drove away. Fuck those kids. Fuck away. No one needs kids anyways. Yeah. Find your mom by yourself. Goodbye. I want kids. Oh, I'm sorry. Look, I'm going to have one. But if she comes out with black eyes, 
you can have her. She can Take her back. At the hospital. Put her back. No, yeah. no, no. You can push her right no. the fuck back in. I don't care. Another story I found on tbsnews.net said that it, it was a snowy town in the middle of nowhere, Vermont, and an elderly couple heard the sound of three loud knocks on their door. They opened their door and saw two children, a boy and a girl. They said, parents will be here soon. May we come in? What? The children. That was an exact quote. Parents, parents will, will be, be here, here soon. It's like they're freaked May out we come kids. In. They're like, like, that's what I imagine. Like a kid that just threw a party going, shit, parents are here soon. Let's clean the shit up. <laughs> that's what yeah. I'm imagining. It's weird to me that they're like, hey, our parents or my parents. Nope. Just. Parents. parents will be here soon. Whose parents? Maybe her Who parents knows? were on their way. And maybe he's just tagging along. Maybe yeah. both of their parents. Yeah. A the creepy children, okay. <laughs> They did not make eye contact and they just stood there in the doorway. The elderly couple were hesitant, but after a while, they let them inside. No. no. The kids kind of settled in on the couch and the wife asked them, do you want some hot cocoa? And when she went to make some, the husband was like talking to him, kind of asking him questions, and they didn't answer any questions. The wife came back and noticed that her cat was scared and angry with the children. Fucking listen to your pets. They fucking the kids, know. Yes. Wait, whoa, 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 wait. Hold up. Okay. How would their parents know where they are? What if, like, they didn't even ask to, like, use the phone or what nope. they just said no no I love yeah. that you're just no, that, connecting oh. those dots <laughs> okay i'm sorry i'm sorry okay i'm a little late but still yeah they never gave any information on that they just said that they'd be there soon parents here soon so i come in parents here soon when the woman comes back and realizes that her cat's scared and angry the kids just say may we please use the restroom the wife looked at the kids, and that's when she finally saw them. The kids' eyes were as black as a starless universe, which that's an exact quote because that's just, that's fucking poetry. Yeah, no joke. She directed them to the bathroom and returned to her husband, who was covering his face with his hands. She said, did you see their eyes? And that's when the husband moved his hands to show her they were full of blood. Because when the kids walked past him, his nose immediately started bleeding. The power suddenly went out and the house turned as dark as the kids' eyes. The wife headed to the rescue and was confronted by the voice of the kids at the end of the hall, uttering, Our parents are here. The kids then exited the house, leaving the door wide open. And the wife noticed that there were two men at the end of the driveway. They were very tall and slender. The wife waved at them, which kudos to her, by the way, for still being like a nice old lady at this point, because I would have been. Yeah, hospitality for yeah. sure. I would have yeah. been slamming doors and be like, <laughs> fuck you all, nope. <laughs> <laughs> so the wife waved, but did not receive the same gesture. The two men and the did kids. Did they flip her off back? Did they be like, mm. nope, they just got oh. in the car. <laughs> They drove away. Wait, they all got in the same the car. car. Yeah. And they just drove away. The power came back on a little while after they left. But throughout the next week, 
weird things happened. They, three out of their four cats just went missing. And the fourth one, they found dead in a pool of his own blood. No idea why. Someone's trying to get rid of those kitty cats and that's fucked up. The husband continued to have nosebleeds. And when he finally went to the doctor, he was diagnosed with a very aggressive skin cancer. So these next stories I got from thoughtcatalog.com. I don't know why I said it like that. I'm sorry. I felt like you were advertising it. <laughs> Thoughtcatalog.com. Where your they, I got a lot. Heard. I got a lot of good stories. They had like 16 stories. And I some of them, like this next one's kind of long. So I tried to just like pull the best ones. I know. I'm sorry that mine was so long. I'm so sorry. No, this one I could have made that long. So I was trying to like tone it down a little bit. I couldn't this find a from... way to tone mine down. So I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I could. <laughs> This is from No Sleep 2012, and she said, It almost felt like a dream. I woke up to my dog, Lucy, barking. She was upright on the bed where my husband and I were sleeping with our 22-month-old daughter, staring at our door like an unknown stranger was out there rummaging around. I thought she was just freaking out over a house noise. We'd only had her for three months, and she was still a puppy. It could have been anything. Our roommate, a creak from the house settling. The awnings moving outside in the breeze. She said she wasn't too concerned initially. She decided the best bet would be to open the door and show her there was nothing there. It sounds a bit silly, but it's what we do with our daughter when she's scared. And I figured it should work with a puppy too. Makes sense. I do that with my dogs. I opened the door and she raced to the front door. She stood there snarling at the door. It was an angry, violent growl, one I had never heard her make before. So she looked groggily at the dog and opened the baby gate, blocking the doorway, planning to open the door and show her everything was okay. But the second her hand reached for the deadbolt, Lucy went wild. She started barking and jumped towards the lady. And when she touched the metal to the deadbolt, She just suddenly changed her temper. She whimpered almost like she was afraid and backed down. As her mannerism changed, so did the ladies. I wasn't calm anymore. My heart was racing and sinking at the same time. I had been flooded with a mixture of fear and dread. I looked through the peephole. I couldn't explain why I looked, but I did. Outside were two kids. One was just a smidgen shorter than me. And didn't look much younger. She's 21. And the girl looked to be 17 or 16 years old. She was slender and pale. And her hair was a light shade of honey blonde. And she wore it long, about mid-back, with long, thin, blunt bangs in the front that covered most of her eyes. She wore jeans, a light wash that's popular right now, and a thin-looking, olive-colored pullover-style hoodie. She held the hand of a small girl who looked to be about three or four years old. They had the same style jeans, but the little girl wore a button-down ivory cardigan. The little one looked at the floor shyly, but she had the same shade of hair tied back in a ponytail. She had a stuffed toy under her arm, and it was identical to one that the lady's daughter had. And their style of dress was really similar, too. Had it not been for the overwhelming fear of dread, 
she probably would have asked the kids in and given them some tea or hot chocolate to get them out of the bitter cold. But something seemed off and that's what kind of stopped her. At this point, she said she hadn't made any noises. She hadn't shushed the dog, grumbled, nothing. She hadn't turned on any lights. So the kids had no indicators that she was at the door. And the older one spoke to her anyways. She had a voice that was mature, confident, strong, and completely accentless. She held her head tilted downwards and she couldn't see her eyes. She said, we have to use your phone. I stood frozen in fear. How did she know I was there? She raised her face to her directly. And that was when she saw her eyes. There was a reason that she couldn't see through her bangs before. And it's because her eyes were black or midnight blue or like a really dark purple. They were otherworldly. She said, our mother is worried. So the lady goes on to tell about how she's a staunch atheist. She's a skeptic when it comes to paranormal. And a lot of her friends and family had told her ghost stories and she just completely wrote them off. But she said there was no way she could rationalize what she was seeing at this point. She said she didn't answer. Slowly and silently, she backed away from the door. And Lucy was still cowering at the woman's ankles. But the girl kept talking. She said, just let us in to use your phone. She took another step back. And with that step, the tone changed. At first, the girl seemed polite. But when she took that second step back, she became commanding and almost hostile. She said, we're not going to hurt you. If we wanted to do that, we would have broken in. I'll ask again. May we come in and use your phone? Fuck and you. This- no, you may not. <laughs> at this point, Lucy snarled at the door. And sh- the woman just inched backwards. But she said something inside of her seemed to be slowly pulling her towards the door. Not physically, but like a subconscious need to go back and let them in. So she- No, she finally got back to her room. She covered up the window, locked the door and just sat there in like the dim light of the nightlight that they had. And she could hear her calling her back to the door again. And then it just went quiet. She says she didn't sleep that night and she hasn't slept right since. She knows from reading about black eyed kids that they can't come in without permission And she knows that they haven't hurt anyone, but she still has this fear that she'll be the the exception. Her husband told her it was just a bad dream and he just keeps telling her to forget it. But every night still to this day, she still has like this lingering feeling of sadness and dread when the house goes quiet at night. She just, it's like she's waiting for her to hear a knock at the door. Yeah, I don't want that either. Thank God for my ring doorbell. Yeah, okay, I want one after this. Time, that husband's no. I mean, if she says that she experienced it, then it's real. Mm-hmm. You you better damn well believe her. That sounds like James though. That because James is just James and me are completely opposite. Like I am, I am very much like paranormal, like ghosts, probably like all of this. But James is just he's the grounded one. He's like, shut the fuck up. It was just a bad dream. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, neither of Cody and I are like, that wasn't a ghost. We're both like, that was a ghost. See, after my mom died, my coffee pot went crazy. And I had to like unplug it because it would start brewing coffee on its own at random ass times. And 
Like I would come home from work and there would just be a puddle of coffee on the kitchen counter. And I'm like, that's my mom. My mom always made coffee. She had coffee every morning, coffee and ice water. That's what she did. And James is like, your coffee pot's just shorting out. And I mean, he was right, but... (laughs) Cody tries yeah. to tell me things like that. And then when I've calmed down a year, like a year later, he'll be like, oh no, that really wasn't a short in that. That was just a ghost. I'm like, I fucking hate you. Uh, no, Mm-mm. don't fuck with my heart like that. So the next one was specifically said to be written by an anonymous person. And he's, well, I'm going to start saying they, cause they didn't give me pronouns. So they said they were riding the bus back home after work. It was about 1 a.m. They're a security guard and they often work odd hours. So they're sitting there and this guy gets on the bus and sits down across from him. He was wearing a suit. He had a briefcase, regular looking guy in his 20s. But what struck the person as odd was that he was chewing a cigar, not smoking it because you can't smoke on the bus. But he was just looking at him while the guy stared out the window chewing the cigar when all of a sudden when all of a sudden he turned and looked at the person and his eyes were pitch black the person's heart immediately started beating like a mad motherfucker his their words <laughs> and i was about they to felt, ask if that was their words yeah and they also their words they felt their gorge rising i assume that means they were about to vomit I don't know what a gorge is when it's not like geographical. They were starting to panic and they had no idea why. They were just pants shittingly terrified of this guy. I'm going to use that because I love it. I love their writing. They said the guy grinned at him, at them, and his teeth were covered in tobacco, just like little pieces of tobacco and brown juice. And the cigar was still clamped in between his teeth. The person says they almost screamed, but instead had the presence of mind to just get up and take the seat directly behind the driver. They said they calmed down a little bit after that, but they kept their eye on the guy and they ended up chatting with some girl that got on the guy chewing a cigar and they were still talking when they got off the bus. So this is by No Sleep Trash. They say that they were just like, it was a night just like any other night. They were switching between listening to music and watching YouTube videos with just one headphone in because they were at home with their infant daughter and their wife. They were trying to let her get like a full night's sleep. You go, man or woman, whoever you are. Good for you. So they say they had just dozed off and they heard a thumping coming from the front porch and they kind of just like jolted awake and then they were like "Eh, it's probably the that damn cat like rubbing up against something or trying to get inside so he dozed off again and then he woke back up to the same thumping and that's when the person got up and they were going to go run him off the porch but they didn't see the cat so By that time, they were up, so they were like, all right, I'll just make some tea and check Facebook. You know, whatever you do in the dead hours of the night. I'll tell y'all in a few weeks when the baby gets here. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I hope I don't think it'll be in a few weeks. I think you'll tell us sooner than that. 
Yeah, probably like Next whenever week. she gets here. Yeah. Like Thursday. Let's let's we'll talk Thursday. Okay. Yeah, like three AM and I'm just gonna be like, This is bullshit. I'm gonna say that's a personal problem. <laughs> so they were kind of just like watching something on YouTube and a few minutes into the video, they just got this urge to look up at the kitchen window and they saw the tops of two heads. They said they had to have been pretty short because they that's all they saw in the window was just the top of their head. They didn't see anything nope. else. Nope. 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 No. Nope. 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 No. They said the people were just kind of standing there. They didn't hear any footsteps on the porch like they should have, but they heard a steady, hollow thump. And it was the exact same one that they had previously blamed on their cat that woke them up originally. Damn cat's hiding from them. The damn cat's like, I'm not stupid. <laughs> Fucking hiding so in this closet. This person just closes their laptop and goes back to the baby's room and is just like, nope. Did not engage at all. They That's good. They thought it was like... Why are people they were calling the police? I did see one story. I'll tell you about that one at the end where the woman or person does call the police. But this person thought apparently they live next to like some low income houses that they had issues with. So they thought it was like some random middle of the night stoners or something. Some kind of drug addicts. That is what they said to stoners. But once they got back to their daughter's room, that's when the creepiness and the dread kind of set in because they heard that thump move from the kitchen window to both windows, a room apart. So they could hear it coming from like this room and then this other room, but the knocks were perfectly in sync, even though they weren't standing right next to one another. So now they're kind of pissed off because they're worried that these stoners quote unquote are going to wake up their daughter so they run back to the kitchen, unlocked and opened the door, ready to just take off to the side of the house and just kick these Some kids' of them. asses. Stupid. And when they open the door, they see two 10 or 11-year-old boys. And the feeling of dread and the smell of mold, they Close said almost, almost made them vomit. Close the fucking and the, door. The smaller of the two said... May we use your telegraph? Close the door. And he was like. Immediately. He said he was just kind of like a mix between confused and horrified. And he was like, I don't have a telegraph. But he never said anything. And that's when he looked at him and just kind of. He realized that he was staring into just pitch black eyes. And that's when the kid again was like, can we use your telegraph? And he said that he heard nothing else there was no crickets chirping no dogs barking no cars going by absolutely nothing so he said that he didn't even uh didn't even comment on the fact that telegraphs aren't a thing and he just said i don't have service at my house sorry and their expressions immediately turned to rage as soon as the sentence left his mouth and he shut the door and locked it as quick as he could and stumbled back to protect his infant daughter. And he said that like as soon as he picked her up, he was expecting her to wake up, but she just stayed asleep, which was really weird. And it kind of freaked him out even more. 
but she was breathing and she was warm. Person's like, okay, this is everything's okay then. And then that's when they heard the thumpings on the window come back. And he just like dropped to the floor against the wall and just held his daughter in his arms. And he stayed there until his wife woke up the next morning and started getting ready for work. And that's when he said the feeling of dread just kind of like slowly subsided and they just went about their day. No, I had been like, we need to move (laughs) and burn the fucking house down. We're moving today. I don't give a shit where we're going to Antarctica where no one will bother us. Okay. Yeah. No joke. This is the last one and it's by Hammer Hands. Hammer and this Hammer. one's this is my favorite because it's just it's another weird one. So apparently they had just moved to a new city with their wife. They were small town newlyweds from the Midwest and they moved across the country to one of the biggest cities in the Southwest. So they could, uh, this person could go to graduate school. And being naive and new to city living, this person said they just habitually answered the door without second guessing it, which you don't I get do that. that. No, you I, don't I do that. I feel where they're coming from and I don't do that. But that is something that was like, it was just never taught to me as a child growing up in a small town where a lot of people know everybody else you just open the door and you're like hi how can i help you oh no no i got to be an adult and started listening to true crime and i was like fuck that door no no you army crawl to the fucking window and then go (laughs) i don't know i don't even do that like if the doorbell rings or something i just go to a window facing the front of the house and if i don't see some kind of delivery truck i just go right on back to my bedroom where my guns are located that is what's great about the ring doorbell is because I don't even have to move my ass anymore. I can be on the couch and I can get the notification. And I can be like, oh, it's missionaries. They don't need to know I'm home. <laughs> Damn missionaries. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I should I should put a, a thing right next to my door. We're, we're looking at houses. So. See, we have yeah. two front doors and one of them we don't use. Who the fuck uses a front door? And then the other one's in a carport. That's the one we use. So I would have to like angle the doorbell to where it's in a specific location to where I can see both. Or I can just get or two. Or just get two. Yeah. Just, just they're not that doorbells. expensive. They're like a mm-hmm. sixty bucks a piece or something. Not bad. I know what I'm getting for Christmas. There you James. Go. James. Hint, hint. Oh, wait. <laughs> we have a daughter now, and I'm already ridiculously anxious. Go on. I'm ready for the story. They say that the first thing that should have tipped them off to it being just kind of peculiar is the fact that someone was knocking on their door at six o'clock in the morning. Yeah, don't knock on my door at six o'clock in the morning. Yeah, what the, the fuck, the do, you fuck do you think you are? You better Why? have donuts. First of all, you better have like a warrant and there better be a fucking <laughs> suspect, like a victim. I don't know. Like it better be a damn good reason. Even then, I'm not a cop. We serve our warrants at like one or two in the afternoon. So that's not even going to like pop into my head. The second thing that they say should have dawned on them is this kid had to reach over a very tall patio gate to unlatch and open it to get to their door. But it's six in the morning. I get that this stuff ain't going through your head. So the knock at the door, it scared them and their wife. They were getting ready for work. They were just in their normal routine. So 
he they say that the minute they opened the door, they were overtaken with an inexplicable sense of fear. And to this day, he can they can still picture this boy perfectly. They say it was a teenager, average height, average build, knee length, black leather coat, immediately fucking terrifying, short black hair and sunglasses. The sunglasses at 6 a.m. are just. Don't make sense. Why? Who needs sunglasses at 6 a.m.? This teenager was also eating an apple. Okay, an apple a day does keep the doctor away. He said he was very polite and he asked if he could come in and warm up. And the guy said no and closed the door and slid the security chain into place. So a minute later, they heard another knock and they opened the door because now it's chained. So, you know, it's only like a little bit. And before the person could even say anything, The kid asked again, can I come in and warm up? And the person says no and uh, tries to shut the door. But before it could shut, the kid puts his hand out, stopping the door from shutting. And he looked directly into the person's eyes, still wearing sunglasses, and says, can I at least get some ketchup for my apple? What? Yes. I've heard of people putting ketchup on some real nasty shit. There are people that like ketchup a lot. Yeah. I know a girl that eats it on their bacon, but on an apple, no. So this person yells, fuck that. Get the hell out of here. My wife is calling the police. Thank God someone's sensible. (laughs) The kid takes a moment to let this information sink in, lowers his glasses, revealing eyes as black as obsidian and says, no, you won't be calling anybody. Oh, watch I just, me. I just gave just myself chills. Watch me. Ugh. And after the kid says that, the person forces the door closed, locks it, and calls out to their wife, who is scared shitless, hiding in the bedroom. So all jacked up on adrenaline, this person rips the curtains back to look out the window next to the door, and the kid is gone. Absolutely no trace of him. The person goes out on the patio, checks the gate. It's still latched from the inside. But as he as they're going back inside to enter the house, they find a half-eaten apple lying on the ground. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. If anyone knocks on my door at six in the morning, first thing I'm doing is calling the police. Mm-hmm. There's a disturbance. It is 6 a.m. Someone is ringing my doorbell. Yeah. I need a welfare check on myself. Right now. (laughs) There is a black-eyed kid at my fucking door. You don't understand. Oh, there was... I didn't put it in here, but I did read another story about... I believe it was a woman who said she lived alone. She had an apartment on the third floor. And she gets home and something just tells her to, like, go to the patio. And when she opens the... You know, she's got those long blinds. The standard apartment patio blinds when she opens them there's two kids standing on her balcony on the third fucking floor nope you close asking those blinds. her to let them inside you close those blinds and you go i'm calling the police and that is exactly what she did she called the cops and the cops got there and there was no one there and they they did a report because she said uh i believe she said that they did see some kids like running away but 
how the fuck did they get up to a balcony on the third floor? Because the second floor people weren't home, so they had to climb up to the third floor. Mm-mm, I don't like it. Mm-mm. I don't like it. Yeah, no, that it's just really creepy. Can you imagine? They're just going door to door. Let us in. I don't know if I would be more uncomfortable with them coming up to my car or coming up to my home. Both. I don't like it at all. I like <laughs> neither. Do not approach me. I am not an approachable person. I wish I wasn't. I am. Mm-mm. I don't like people, but I'm good at putting on a face. But I'm not letting you in. I'm just telling you that right now. Mm-mm. Don't even try it. I'm going to be like, mm, locking the door. My dogs will eat you alive. Yes. They wouldn't, but I'll let people think that. You're, you're kind of creepy, bro. Uh-huh. Maybe we should do a, a story about you. True crime or paranormal? <laughs> That's the real question. Both. I'll do the true crime side. Amanda will do the paranormal side. Well, I have to because she's not a cannibal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that we know. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> no. Just don't fucking. I don't like. I don't like people. Don't bug me. Don't bother me. Don't come up to my door. Don't be creepy. We're good. I deal with enough people at work, and they're not. They're not good people. Most of the time, I don't want to deal with people outside of work. I don't know what I deal with at work because my last day was on Friday. My last day for a while will be tomorrow. My last half day. Unless you go into labor today. I've still got cleaning to do. Okay, but then you make James do the cleaning. I on her. That's so sad. She still is cleaning. My, make- I did have a co-worker uh, text me today and she was like, have you had that baby yet? And I was like, no, not yet. And she's like... All right, we'll take the four by four to the golf course tomorrow at work. And I was like, cool. I'll wear my boots and sit on a towel. (laughs) You're like, done, deal. (laughs) That was a creepy one. I had to close the picture of the black eyed kids because they were freaking me out. I felt like they were looking into my soul. And I didn't like that. No, seriously. The old school ones are worse than the new school ones I, in my opinion the not period even clothes. nope i closed i didn't even look at it. i was like i know what they look like we're done we'll just look at the one picture i need to i fell asleep watching videos on them last night so i don't know what that says about me but that says here that i am we're all messed up in the head apparently i'm oh, so God. sorry that my unborn child can hear this she's gonna be fucked up eventually <laughs> Oh, but that's she's okay. Child. She already was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry, guys. I know this was like a really, really long one to listen to. That's my fault. Um, I hope you enjoyed my rabbit hole with me. Thank you guys so, so, so much for watching. Um, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Hell on Heels Podcast. If you really want to show your support for us, you can donate through Patreon. We are shameless and we will take any donations so that we can better improve. If you have your own true crime or paranormal stories, please email us at hellonheelspodcast at gmail.com. Another big shout out to Amanda's husband, James, for creating our intro music. And be sure to like, review, and subscribe. That is how we get more listeners and we continue this. Because if you don't like, review, and subscribe, we might start crying soon. Uh, But thank you guys all so much for listening. This has been Hell on Heels. Till next time. Bye. See y'all later. Bye.